Um, thank you very much, Connor, for that lovely introduction. Um, that was just a wonderful talk by the President and uh, one which carries so many echoes for the work that we have been doing um, for the last number of years. Today is a hugely important day for those families who lost members or who suffered e emotional and economic damage from the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic in Ireland. Their story was not told collectively until the 21st century, and often they suffered without knowing the bigger picture. For, and as for almost 90 years, this story was not researched by historians of Ireland, and there was no national Spanish flu narrative. I want to thank very sincerely President Higgins and his staff for holding this event, and indeed it's part of his family too. I am delighted to share it with my good colleague, Dr. Patricia Marsh, as the two of us have worked together very collegially since 2006, constantly re-evaluating the many puzzles in a fascinating research topic, exploring the massive damage it did to Irish people, the local reasons for higher death rates, the impact it had on the revolutionary movement, and Ireland's war contribution, and how Irish health services struggled to cope always pondering, again, how they would struggle to cope in the context of a new pandemic. Professor Guy Biner has been an enormous support to us both in this work and uh, is also developing very much his own um, interest in the, the memory and the global mem remembering for and forgetting of the flu. And he held a very important seminar in Frankfurt recently on that topic. And the three of us also co-wrote an article in History Ireland in 2009, which was one of the very first publications on the topic in an Irish context. I am very, very glad we have in the audience people or representatives, representatives of people who played an important role in helping us to understand this story, both my oral history interviewees and their family, and people from the frontline medical services who have helped me in particular, I suppose, to understand my part of the story and who will deal with future pandemics. In 2006, I began my doctoral studies on this topic in Trinity, delving first into the big pictures, the numbers and rates of death. This flu, as we've heard from President Higgins, killed up to 100 million people globally out of a world population of 2 billion. In many parts of the world at the time, death certification was not robust, so we still have no good statistics for China or for Russia, which of course was in revolution. And the Indian death toll of, two million, of 20 million has only been worked out in the last 10 years. It actually equals the original global toll by epidemiologist Edwin Oakes Jordan in 1927. So the total is going to remain in some ways unsatisfyingly vague, but awesome. It's also important to remember those who survived the disease, as it often had severe health impacts over their life course. Up to half the world's population may have suffered it, so that's an awful lot of impact. And it might happen again, particularly in a world that has increasing myth about and resistance to vaccine. We've already seen people die or suffer horrible, unnecessary illness because of growing measles vaccination resistance. In Ireland, uh, Spanish flu killed at least 23,000 people, whether from the flu itself or from pneumonias caused by the flu. It spread around the country in three waves, in May and June and the autumn of 1918 and in the spring of 1919. As very quickly we look through these maps, this is 1918 and the darker colours are the, the higher rates of death and this is 1919. 
As it passed through communities, entire towns and, and suburbs would be stilled, business curtailed, public buildings closed, courts postponed, matches cancelled, schools shut. Hospitals and the poor law medical service, which is already suffering staff shortages, as so many were away serving at war, were overwhelmed and turned over most wards to, to flu, even corridors. Poor law doctors, nurses and pharmacists worked long hours, almost around the clock, as I have lots of oral history evidence to prove, desperately trying to save people. Neighbours rode in to nurse and feed other neighbours. It wasn't unusual for families to experience multiple deaths. Young adults aged 25 to 35 um, were, the most, were the unusual age cohort affected, one not normally hit by seasonal flus. This had a severe impact on families. As it was a group that were also parents of children and family breadwinners. Children under the age of five died in higher proportions than other age groups too. This was a sector of Irish society um, that suffered a huge disease burden at the time in this pre-vaccination and pre-antibiotic era, an era when parents hadn't even ready access to fever-reducing drugs like paracetamol. One-fifth of all the 70,000 or so deaths on the, on the island any year in the 1910s were of children under the age of five. They died in hundreds from diseases like measles, diphtheria, scarlet fever, and in thousands from tuberculosis, pneumonia, bronchitis, diseases whose impact has now been annihilated by modern medicine and better living conditions. They also died from conditions of poverty. During the flu, the pages of the Registrar-General's death certification and the Glasnevin burial records list, which you can see on, on, on the um, ex exhibition, list child after child who died in this period. The, the pa this page here uh, shows death certification for Dublin in mid-November 1918. Of the six deaths on this page, all influenza-related, one is of a 31-year-old woman. The rest are of children aged seven months to 15 years. Children from areas like Summerhill, Dorset Street, and Marlborough Street, the infamous Dublin tenement areas. The impact on the flu, of the flu on the very poor was massive. The Registrar-General's reports show that during the second wave in the winter of 1918, the classification for street hawkers and, and uh, casual laborers experienced a death rate of over 37 per thousand living. Over one third of that group, the deaths in that group, were possibly influenza-related deaths of children under the age of five. So the children of the very poor were really severely impacted by this. With our modern lens, it is really hard to comprehend how people coped with the scale of death within communities and families, both during the flu and in normal conditions as well. But flu wasn't confined to, to the lower socioeconomic classes. Broadly, it impacted more severely on families where the income earner had a job dealing with the public. And in relation to that, the former resident of this house, Sir John French, also caught the flu, as did um, David Lloyd George. Newspaper workers, both printers and journalists, teachers, priests, people working in banking, postmen, shop workers of all types, prison warders, and of course, the frontline services like police, ambulance drivers, doctors, and nurses, all suffered disproportionately compared to other jobs. Domestic servants were quite protected, a lucky category for once, probably because they had little time off. 
and high levels of flu death were not confined to urban areas, areas either, as statistics, newspaper reports, and oral history show. In 2006, as I was wrestling with this big data, with the statistics from influenza and associated pneumonias and bronchitis or heart disease, my supervisor in Trinity, Professor David Dixon, suggested that there was still a narrowing window to collect living memory. He even provided the first interviewee. Renowned cultural historian and equally renowned Trinity College eccentric R.B. McDowell, who in high summer could be seen walking around campus, just like in this picture, in an overcoat and a woolen scarf. R.B. had caught it as a small boy in Belfast. His family were told he, could not, he would not live through the night. So David brought R.B. into our office in Trinity, and as he was quite deaf, I handed him a list of 12 questions. R.B. read them and put the question to one side. He clearly had a photographic memory. He answered each one in turn, and suddenly I was looking at my big data through a whole new lens. This wasn't about statistics. It was about real people and their fight to live, to survive and beat this awesome disease. Of the perhaps 800,000 or so who caught it in Ireland, this old man in front of me was one, having survived it as a five-year-old. From RB's memories, I began to get a sense that this was not something long ago, inactive, but something that was living still in the memories of the people around me, whether as survivors or as family of the dead. And that sense is actually still growing 13 years uh, later as I collect more and more fluke stories, particularly at local history top talks. The topic is very um, popular with local history groups at the moment, where the audiences always contribute their own stories, even though the living uh, memory, uh, time for living memory has really passed. After a promising start with MacDool, I started searching for people old enough to have lived through it as children. The challenge was to find reliable witnesses who would be willing to be interviewed, trusting a stranger with intimate details of their illness or perhaps of their family's, family's death. Some were found by making contacts in nursing homes through radio interviews, articles in newspapers and in publications aimed specifically at the elderly. I have to admit to having a secret weapon who's here in the audience, retired postman Jim Tancred, who was a huge help in tracking down survivors and interviewing them with me. As my project became better known, and as news stories about the threats posed by avian and the 2009 influenza A, or Mexican flu, stimulated interest in and memory of this last great influenza pandemic, people volunteered to participate. Some uh, participated in formal recorded interviews, others perhaps because of shyness or distance or because they had not much to impart, were interviewed by telephone or through written communication. In all, in this period, I collected approximately 50 interviews. And I say approximately, not because I can't count, but because some scarcely count as interviews, having been little more than a useful sentence, while others, like Tommy Christian, contributed hours of recordings on different days. And their contributions have pro provided a very, very rewarding new source for the study of the pandemic. These interviews show that the epidemic made a lasting impact on the memories of children, even though the event was puzzling as they didn't have enough information to make sense of what was happening. They were missing schema, if you like, evidence to hang their own stories onto. We all need schema to inform our memories. And there wasn't then the national narrative that we have uh, today. They sometime, somehow knew it was important, perhaps internalizing the anxious body language of the grown-ups fretting over them. Some became curious listeners, trying to glean scraps of information from it, about it from newspapers and from the hush, hushed adult conversations. 
Some had acute memories. Others, like RB, um, for them the memory was hazy, mediated through a lens of febrile fog. We all know that fever. The shadows of people moving around them, tending and anxiously hovering. Others told of family and neighbours who'd succumbed. These stories not only tell of individual or familial trauma, but also show how the medical system worked or didn't work, what treatments were given, living conditions at the time, and most significantly, they add the human voice to the impersonal records like death statistics and the news reports. They tell, if you like, the little picture, behind the big picture of, of the statistics, of the individual, human or familial experience, the damage to families and to individual health, and the trauma of loss. They point very strongly to the long-term emotional damage done to children as their families were altered or destroyed by this flu, and sometimes to the economic damage, as often losing a parent meant losing the family income earner, and maybe losing a home if the job came with a house. Prison warders, railway workers, teachers, tenant farmers were some examples where the houses came with a job. The more interviews I did, the more I became engaged with this idea of long-term economic and emotional fallout. Sometimes the surviving parent might decide to move country to start a new life. So in those cases, children not only lost their parent and their home, but also their wider family circle. These findings of long-term damage were for me the surprising take-home point, and a point which has been reinforced over the past 17 months during the anniversary period as I give talks, and the audiences tell me of the impact often over generations that death, damage, or even a frightened survival had had on family life. They've also suggested some conclusions in the broad nature of memory about the pandemic, and these fall into two broad categories. Firstly, why it was essentially a forgotten history until the 21st century, and secondly, that memory on the pandemic is still evolving, and even snowballing in the 21st century, 100 years later, even as direct memory has almost become extinct. And I add a caveat there because I still live in hope, as one of my interviewees was 107 years of age. In 1918, Ireland was going through a period of rapid transition from being part of the of, of United Kingdom and Ireland to independence. It was about to enter a full-blown revolution and civil war. We'd just been through the bloody 1916 rebellion. Many of our people were away serving in the First World War. Historians, both internationally and in the Irish cases, uh, uh, tend to observe, when asked why the flu pandemic was not covered in the historiography of this time, that there was a focus instead on the military and political events, and that this occluded the influenza pandemic. Obviously, it's particularly pertinent in the Irish case, as we had the added complication of revolution, and perhaps also of, of divided and conflicting loyalties. I'd like to offer two other reasons. Um, at the time of the death, uh, time death from disease was such an omnipresent feature of life in Ireland, as in most other countries. And this is something we tend to forget from our contemporary perspective. I refer back, for example, to the statistic I gave earlier that in the Ireland of the 1910s, 20% of the annual deaths were of children under the age of five. Death from infectious disease happened to most families, sometimes often, particularly to families living in Dublin's notorious tenement slums. So these deaths and the influenza pandemic, no matter how dramatic they appear to our 21st century perspective, were not all that unusual in the health context of the times. And this is something I've encountered over and over again in the, inter in the flu interviews. Peeping tell me of other children who died from diseases like rheumatic fever, scarlet fever, diphtheria, whooping cough, measles, or diarrhea. 
The other reason we knew so little about it, I speculate, is that history from below simply wasn't popular in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic. It really doesn't become very popular until after the, the Second World War. Um, and oral history, indeed, really took off after the Second World War. And documenting the emotional experience of, of suffering from the disease, the impact of the disease on the rest of people's lives and on their emotional health, is still a relatively new mode of history. The second broad point I'd like to make on memory spans the time frame of my own work, and this is about the transience and the changing memory. While I began interviewing in 2006, many of my interviewees had little concept of the national or international context of their disease experience. R.B. McDowell had, but then he had the perspective of a historian. One other early interviewee, Elizabeth Malloy, was the child of newsagents, and she worked in the newsagent shop and was a very early reader. So she would have read about it in the newspapers. Um, one of the other reason I often think is that, that people weren't going out to buy newspapers, so they weren't aware of what was happening because they were staying in because of the flu. Um, many of the other interviewees, like Tommy Christian, would say to me, hey, as Tommy said, what was this all about? As they recall catching a bad flu as children or if their parents had caught it. For these, the interviews became a two-way exchange of information as I gave them the broader context for their own or their family's sickness. So the 2009 uh, pandemic then brought a change. People were a lot more aware of, about it after that. And then in the last year, as, uh, with the centenary, as uh, I and Patricia and other flu historians uh, have been busy giving talks at national and local level. Um, I've given 35 local history talks since January uh, 2018 alone, and in every single one of them, I've got a new story. You know, stories of um, a woman whose mother was born on the floor of uh, the local mental hospital because there was no room in the hospital, or of the creamery in Gregnamana, the staff going out to milk cows because the farmers were too sick to milk the cows, things like that. At an international Spanish flu uh, conference in Oslo, hosted by Sven Eric Mameland, uh, Howard Phillips suggested to me that perhaps our published work is now affecting the interviews I collect and that the interviewees have started to incorporate this material into, into their family memories of the flu. And of course, this caused me to reflect, and indeed it is happening. Uh, people will share their own stories of the flu and will often say that uh, their family member was part of that unusual age cohort who died, young adults, or that their father was more vulnerable as he had a job at the police, or that he was uh, from Donegal, an area with particularly high mortality uh, from the flu, as Patricia Marsh's wonderful work has shown. So our work is actually informing memory. And it's not something you think about often as a historian, that our work must do that. Uh, so then the other great uh, advantages uh, people have nowadays, and thanks to Katrina Crow is in the audience, um, they have the 1901 and the 1911 census data to tell more of their own story. They also have the online death certification to see whether or not they actually did die from flu, as indeed we were able to do with, with um, Patricia Gott for, for uh, Daniel Canty. His, his death certificate. Um, they may be able to find newspaper sources to add to their, their family's story. So they now have those schema in which to hang the slender evidence of their own direct memory, to construct it into something larger, a more uh, complete story. Uh, let me just very swiftly reduce you to some of my flu people, and the connections of the people I mention are all in the audience. Tommy Christian caught the flu as a five-year-old, living with his mother, father, and sister in Art Clock in North Kildare. 
Tommy told me of a pain in his throat that you would never forget, and of the doctor coming at three o'clock in the morning to look at the family all down with the flu. And then he said the doctor caught it himself, and he said we were jiggered altogether. And you could feel with, you know, this real sense of despair when he spoke about it. Tommy's mother died about a year after the flu, and although she died from another illness, Tommy suggested her health was never as good as catching after catching the flu. And again, this is something we see in the statistics, something we call reaping early, where you die from another illness, but you die, you die more quickly. He told two of the help given by a neighbouring family, the O'Connors, who nursed local people ill with the flu, and ha of having his first taste of, of whiskey punch as a five-year-old. And whiskey was one of the most useful medicines at the time. Claire Ablett, a curator at the Ulster Museum in Belfast, had a particular interest in hosting a workshop on the flu in the museum with Guy, myself and Patricia and David Killingray, as her great-grandmother Minnie Crothers died for the flu at her home in Crumlin Road, Belfast, on the 18th of November. 1918, Claire gave me this beautiful picture of the elegant uh, young woman with her four children. When Minnie died, her husband Thomas took their four children to start a new life in Canada, but when they got there, he couldn't get work, and the children were taken into care for a time until he got a job as a postman. So they lost their father, their mother, their home, their wider circle, um, the father just for a time. Uh, this had a long impact on the family, particularly as their experience of orphanage was not good. All her youngest daughter, Dorcas, Claire's grandmother, the little girl on her mother's knee in that picture, could remember about her mother was the black-plumed horses pulling the hearse at her funeral. Anne Burke told me the story of her father, grandfather James Delaney's death, and together uh, we figured out the long impact it had, particularly on her father, Dennis, who was five when his father died. James was a police constable in Dublin at Lad Lane and had gone back to work after suffering the flu but died of the job from pneumonia. In the course of the interview uh, process, Jane uh, Anne, uh, suggested that perhaps Dennis's lifelong fear of, human, of uniforms came from uh, the police calling to the door to say his father was dead. Two years later, Dennis's little sister Rebecca died from uh, scarlet fever, and Dennis was effectively wrapped in cotton wool by his family, who naturally feared that some disease would take him too. And that's the little girl who died there on her mother's knee. Stella um, Larkin McConnon told me of her mother's family, the Moors, a labouring family who lived in Marlborough Street in the notorious tenements of Dublin, where housing was so crowded and unhygienic that infectious disease spread like wildfire, and where the conditions were essentially uh, syndemic, as multiple um, epidemics could coexist to follow in quick, quick succession. Anna Moore, her mother, was one of ten children, and the only one who survived over the age of five. Some of them died in the diarrhoea epidemic of 1911 and 1913, a hot summer which caused elevated levels of diarrhoea uh, from Canada right across to Europe, uh, right across Europe to Russia. Others died from measles, scarlet fever, and in 1918, little Mary Moore, aged four and three quarters, who was believed to have the gift of sight, asked her mother to dress her in her best dress as she thought something important was about to happen. She climbed into the one bed in the family one-room tenement and died from influenza. Families were often split up following the loss of um, parents to the disease. My grandfather's cousins, a couple in North Wexford, James and Elizabeth Milton, died within each, each, one day of each other in December 1918. Their two early teenage children, who lived in this farmhouse with them in Clohaman, were sent to different branches of the family after the funeral and had little connection with each other for the rest of their lives. 
John Ralph of Tombrack in North Wexford, picture here, here with his wife Elizabeth, was a farmer who, who died from the flu on the 13th of October 1918, leaving his wife to raise their five children. His family believed he might have caught it going to Dublin by train to do business, as he often did. They also think that his wife, who remarried quite soon after, did so to protect the family during the revolutionary period, as a woman on a Rome in a farmhouse, which generally would be understood to have guns, uh, would more likely to have been a target of marauders. And again, this is a finding which has been suggested to me by other families in similar circumstances. Finally, let me take you to an example of uh, much of the bravery that went on with this disease, when people would step in at great risk to their own families to care for neighbours in need. This lady, Bab, we knew her as, she, she was a great friend of our family, or Eileen Davitt, uh, from our area in North Wexford, told me of her mother and aunt, worried that nursing their neighbours, the Lancasters, would bring some dread, the dread disease into their own house. The entire Lancaster family were down with the disease. So they walked four miles into Ferns to ask the parish priest whether they ought to take the this risk. The priest told them to go ahead, that God would protect them. So they returned and nursed the Lancasters and felt God kept his promise to them. But Kate Lancaster, the mother, died and one of her sons. The other son, Dennis, was then a boy of 13, survived along with his father. As a small child, I often sat, and that's their little house there on the right-hand side, and um, uh, I often sat um, on his knee listening to his stories, never really realising that one day I would research his family's connection to this global catastrophe. I think this is a lesson for us all, that we all have probably been that close to someone who experienced tragedy in the Spanish flu. I'm thankful to all those who've shared these stories with me and glad that today we bring the Tinnismore to our Sanuktaran to remember them in a fitting way. Thank you.